going to invite forward a young man named Josh Salmon, who is in our graduating class as he navigates the line of choir members. Uh, I, my wife, Reagan, and I, we, we had the privilege and honor to be small group leaders for this class for the last few years now. And um, I've got to know Josh uh, in many uh, evenings of conversation uh, with him and the other guys in this graduating class. And as such, I reserved the right to mess with him. Um, but luckily I did not. I gave him a scripture this morning with no crazy names. I thought about giving him something about King Abimelech or King Nebuchadnezzar. That I chose not. Instead, we're going to talk about Jesus and bread. So I invite forward Josh Salmon to read our scripture. I invite those of us who are able to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Good morning. So today I'll be reading from the book of John. Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. They believe in whom he has sent. So they sent, said to him, What sign are you going to give us then so sorry, I cannot see. So that we may see it and, and believe you that work what work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna and the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true of bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The word of God, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Seated. Seniors, y'all can clap for a reading of scripture. That's okay. There you go. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. It's my great joy to be preaching this morning on Baccalaureate Sunday. Uh, it, it, it is Baccalaureate Sunday, our Senior Recognition Sunday, and it got me thinking about my own experience of leaving mom and dads and heading off to college for the very first time. That's going to be a fun experience for y'all. I entered into college ready to expand my horizons, ready to learn new things. And my faith was no exception. I wanted to get exposure to different expressions of Christianity. So I visited various campus ministries for Methodists, of course, and for Catholics and Presbyterians too, and and even the Baptists. I was just so intrigued by the spiritual and intellectual stimulation. And I just loved learning so much about Jesus from so many different angles. At least that's what I told myself. It definitely didn't have anything to do with the fact that on Mondays, the Baptists had Bible study over lunch. 
On Tuesday, the Presbyterians offered free fellowship meal to any and all visitors. The Catholics served a great soup on Wednesdays. And Thursdays were potluck lunches at the Wesley Foundation. College really fed my soul, you could say. Y'all will learn that too. You'll get the schedule down. College ministries know something that Jesus knew in the sixth chapter of John. That if you want people to listen to your message, free food never hurts. And so in honor of our senior Sunday, it is rather appropriate that we continue our series on the I Am Statements of Christ by turning now to the very first one in the Gospel of John. What does it mean for Jesus to be the bread of life for our lives? As I read this passage in John, I think it means that we need to get fed, stay hungry, and feed the world. This morning, let's talk about how these three actions with the living bread of Christ could transform not only our lives, but the lives of our world as well. So I normally try to be a patient man. I like to think of myself as generally kind and genial to the people that come across my path. That being said, I am one of millions of Americans who suffers from a chronic condition called hanger. Perhaps you have heard of it. Hanger is an illogical, mindless anger that arises in a correlated fashion with my hunger levels. When I don't eat, I get hangry. Do you or someone you know suffer from hanger as well? Do you experience hanger on a daily basis? Reagan has been married to me for over six years now, and she has had to learn that when my hanger sets in, I am basically useless until I get something to snack on. She's like, Scott, go drink one of Andy's juice boxes, eat a cookie. I don't care. Eat something. You are hangry. Of course, hanger can go beyond our stomachs as well. Have you ever suffered from spiritual hanger? You're unhappy. You're unfulfilled. You feel like something is missing. You're not as kind as you'd like to be. You're not as loving, not as hope-filled, and you just can't put your finger on why. I find that the further I stray from God, the longer I go without prayer or studying scripture or having just a meaningful conversation of faith with a friend, the longer I go without these things, the hangrier I get. Maybe that's why Jesus starts with, I am the bread. Before he's light or resurrection or way or truth or life, he is bread. And let me tell you, I can get on board with that. Because when you're hangry, is there really anything else that matters beyond your next meal? Can I get an amen? Have you ever found yourself in scripture, in worship, or in prayer for the first time in a long time, or for that first meaningful time in a series of going through the motion times of life? When that scripture just jumps right off the page and into your heart, when that sermon strikes you to your core, when that hymn hits you, the voice of God rings so loudly, so clearly. These moments strike us like that first bite of a delicious meal when hunger had set in more than we knew. Jesus compares himself to something that can be eaten, something consumable. Because in part, I think it's exactly what he wants us to do. He wants us to consume who he is, and what he stands for. Of course, consuming 
has a negative connotation in today's Christian church, especially here in America. For the past few decades, consumer church, as it's called, has skyrocketed in popularity as people search for churches where they can simply consume worship and preaching without engaging in the deeper life of a Christian community. And maybe you think you found a church like that this morning at Lover's Lane, but I loved when Zach Emery said earlier, one of his great joys in this church is the level of service that we open up to our community. I would say that we expect from our community to engage our larger community through our prayers, our presence, our gifts, service, and witness as we attempt to love all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. I do think that consumer-driven church has been very detrimental to American Christianity. Consumer-driven church is quite the American spin on church, after all. It's been damaging, I think, because we've convinced ourselves somewhere, some way along the way, that church exists to support me, to feed me, to teach me, to guide me, to love me, to inspire me to feed me in whatever ways I need to be fed. This leads to a type of church participation that is tissue paper thin. And as soon as we hear three or four sermons that don't change our lives, as soon as we leave a handful of worship services that are less than inspiring, as soon as the pastor says something we personally disagree with, we leave and begin to shop for the next one. Christians in America can be more tied to their preferred grocery store than their home church. Because at least their grocery store gives them fuel rewards points, right? The rise of consumerism in church is disappointing. But before we throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater, we ought to consider why it is that Jesus refers to himself as something to be consumed. Let's talk about bread, for instance. Jesus says he's like bread, but he's different. Where typical bread leaves us hungry again and again, Jesus, he says, is the bread of life. Something significant and sustaining that leaves us eternally satisfied. When I eat bread, it becomes a part of me. I chew it up. I swallow it. It gets broken down in my stomach. It gets processed through my intestines. And then, well, we'll stop there. This is church after all. My point is this, the bread is used as my body sees fit, becomes energy for my use. Put simply, it becomes less so that I can continue living. When we consume Jesus as the bread of life, it's actually the precise opposite. Rather than Jesus becoming less so that we might live, it is we who become less so that Christ can live through us. We become the vehicle. And Jesus becomes the main thing. This is the great shift we have to make in consuming Jesus. A consumer-driven church gets it exactly backwards. Rather than focusing on who is consuming, we should be focused on who is being consumed. And those who are about to go to college, trust me, consumer-driven church is going to be everywhere. You'll have all sorts of ministries offering you potlucks and soups and lunches and shows and rock bands and look at this and look at this and look at this and find a group, as you've talked about today, a group that can give you community. That'll be there when you fail the test or when you have the bad breakup or when life doesn't go the way you want it to. Find a community that cares more about that. 
So yes, we get fed at church, but remember that the bread is more important than the one eating it. Eating with the bread of life doesn't just stop at getting fed, though. In fact, I would argue that another of the great pitfalls in American Christianity is our inability to remain hungry. What do I mean? When I graduated high school so long ago, was preparing for college, I was convinced, y'all tell me if you feel the same way, that I knew so much more than my parents and the other adults in my life. Church, I know all of us have been there before. Do you remember this time? I had learned everything I needed to learn, and now life was mine for the taking. I was full of myself, you could say. And then I got dropped off at college, and I had to find the local laundromat and the grocery store, and I had to eat and live on money that had to stretch further than I thought possible. And I had to wake up on my own and walk to class on my own and do everything on my own. And I realized quickly I didn't know as much as I thought that I did. Of course, I wish I could say that was a one-time thing, but then I graduated college thinking I knew everything until I had to find a job. And then I had a job and thought I knew everything until I got fired. We don't like to tell those parts of our stories, do we? And then I started seminary and I thought that I knew everything until I started doing some real pastoring. And now I'm married and I have a kid and I'm about to be ordained. And there is one thing I know for sure. I don't know squat. When Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, it resonates with us, I think, because who doesn't love the idea of being full? But the danger of feeling full is feeling like there's not possibly room for more. Last night, my family invited some friends over to celebrate Cinco de Mayo. And anytime I celebrate, there is food involved. We had tacos and chips and salsa and queso and guacamole and elote. Somebody say amen. 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 And let me tell you, by the time I went to bed, I was full and there was not one inch of room left for more. Thank God for these robes. Have you ever felt the same way in your faith? That you'd gotten what you could out of Jesus. You'd gotten what you could out of church. You knew everything you basically needed to know. You had it figured out. You were full. There really wasn't room for any more. I think it's important in our faith, even as we feast on the bread of life that is Christ, we ought to stay hungry at the same time. Obviously, Jesus tells us this bread of life will fill us in an eternal sense. But what I mean is that we ought to stay teachable. We ought to stay hungry. Hungry for more. Hungry for more teaching, more love, more joy, more depth, more music, more faith, more challenge, more conviction, more grace, more of whatever it is that Jesus has to offer us this very day, this very morning, this very moment of our life. The original Greek word for disciple in the Gospels is mathetes, or more literally, learner. But not learner in just the intellectual or cerebral sense. Mathetes means to learn new ways of being, to imitate the one who is teaching, allowing yourself to be moved into a new way of life. When Christ disciples us, or when we allow ourselves to be discipled, We adopt a position of hunger, 
A position that says, Christ, lead me, mold me, shape me, move me in whatever way you see fit. Never let me be a finished product in this life. As we taste the bread of life in Christ, we have to remember that Christ may be filling, but we can't ever fool ourselves into thinking we're full. Get fed, stay hungry. The last piece of wisdom I see in our text this morning is Christ's challenge to feed the world. Chapter 6 of John's gospel is a bread-filled chapter. My bread fans, woohoo! Amen. The bread of life illustration comes after the miracle of feeding thousands of listeners through the gift of one boy's decision to offer what he had to the people in need around him. Perhaps you remember this story. Jesus took what appeared to be a modest gift, a paltry one even, just five barley loaves and a couple of fish. And Jesus used that gift to feed every single person there. It should be said that optimism is a dying trait in our world today. Cynicism is chic in media, in politics, and unfortunately in the church as well. Our own denomination has been in a stalemate of sorts over the last few decades in the debate over human sexuality in the church. And we have a chance to move forward in one way or another this coming February as delegates from around the globe gather for a specially called General Conference in St. Louis. And none of that, none of the details of this debate or our current events in the denomination are important to my message today. But rather this. This past weekend, the Council of Bishops released their proposals and recommendations for our work at General Conference, and I chose to write something on my Facebook page in an effort to simplify what is a convoluted issue, to say the least. And a friend of mine, actually a friend that that became my friend at the Denton Wesley Foundation when I was at UNT, he commented with something along the lines of, I bet the delegates just stonewall each other and nothing gets done. Calling it now. That's cynicism. (laughs) That's cynical. And and I understand why he's cynical. He has every right to be. Many of us are cynical. We've not made any progress on this issue for decades, and there's a good chance that nothing gets done this time around either. But just because we have the right to be cynical does not mean that as a people of faith, we can, in good faith, choose cynicism. My students hear me now. Just because you have the right to be cynical doesn't mean... As a person of faith, you should choose cynicism. Campuses are full of cynicism. I, for one, think that cynicism is highly overrated. When Jesus is gathered with a crowd of thousands and food is sparse and bellies are empty, he and everyone else had every right to be cynical. In fact, his disciple, Andrew, raised a cynical voice with a pointed question. There is a boy here, he says, who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? I can hear my voice saying that to Jesus. What are five loaves and two fishes to so many people? But Jesus found a way. And the people were fed. Even those who wondered how such a meager meal could get the job done. As people of faith, especially as Christians, we must never underestimate the gifts God has given us. Even if those gifts are as seemingly small as a few loaves and fishes. You'd be amazed at what God can use to feed the world.
At the same time, nor should we overestimate ourselves to the point where Jesus is no longer necessary. Even the most zealous of children cannot on their own make five loaves feed 5,000 people. The magic happens when we humbly offer what it is that we have. And God, and we trust that God will fill in the gap. I think that our world needs a comeback for optimism. Amen? Not a sense that things are going to get better because we see the signs that things are getting better. Even the disciples beg for a sign that Jesus is who he says he is. True optimism sees a crowd of hungry bellies, a handful of food, and knows that somehow, some way, God will prove God's self once again. What would happen if we truly believed that not only is Jesus the bread of life, but by his grace we could feed the world? What would happen if we trusted in the gifts that God has given us? Students, what if you trusted in the gifts that God has given each and every one of you, the gifts that your leaders have affirmed in you these past several years? What if we trusted in these gifts, meager as they might seem to us, and we offered them up for God to use? What would happen if we rejected this trend of cynicism and opted instead for an optimism that outsiders probably see as foolish until the breadbasket finally finds its way to them, full as can be? What would happen if we tasted the bread of life, allowed it to teach us to work on us, and and then offered it to a hangry world? Could it change our faith? Could it change our life? Could it change our world? And maybe it's the college-age Scott getting nostalgic up here talking today. But not only do I think a changed world is possible, church, I think it is promised through the same bread of life we are about to consume at the communion table this morning. In just a moment, we will approach the communion table, some of us for the first time, some of us for the thousandth time, some of us for the first time in a long time. And as we do, I hear Jesus offering you and me three simple challenges out of John's gospel this morning. Get fed, stay hungry, feed the world. Amen.